And thinking about the message for today, actually thinking on, on a lot of my messages, I often go back through past messages that have been given in this church, just because I like to kind of get a trajectory of how God has been leading the church and where the church is going. And so I did that for this sermon, and I came upon a sermon that happened June 6th of last year, June 6th of 2004, and our senior pastor Greg Boyd preached a sermon called God's Word to Woodland Hills Church. God's Word to Woodland Hills Church. Now, in this, he described how God re um, revealed over a period of weeks, actually I think it was months, um, words to the overseers and the pastors of our church about how our church was doing on some things, some things that we needed to grow on, some things we were doing fine on. And out of that, I believe, came our Growing in the Spirit campaign. One of those things, God just, the Spirit just kept keying me in on and wouldn't let me go. And it was this one point that God spoke, God spoke to Greg um, through that message. And this is the statement. I know of your passion in worship and fervor in proclamation, but you are too much of an event and too little of a community. Become a community. Let all who have an ear to listen, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And after thinking about that, I was like, God, what's, what's it about that? And I kept feeling the Spirit telling me, Folk, it's time to bring back, focus on the basics. Get back to basics. The whole reason this church is here is so that we can be a spiritually empowered community that advances the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And so I believe that God wants to give us some tools, some, some keys by which we can do that. And so the title of this message is going to be The Right Heart for Redemptive Community. The Right Heart for Redemptive Community. Um, this, is a, this is a powerful word, and I know that Satan is not going to want this to go forth. I need some prayer warriors. Could I please get some prayer warriors that are willing to pray for this message that goes forth? Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Just a couple of more. A couple more. I really want this message to sink down into the depths of who we are as individuals and a body of Woodland Hills Church. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for, for being you. I just thank you for being a God that is real, a God that is there. Father, I declare right now that I cannot bring this word forth. I cannot, I cannot stand here and do this without your authority. I need you to completely decrease all of me and just pour yourself in me, Lord God. I realize that I am a broken cistern, and I need your water of the word to come through here, Lord God. I pray that you would, by your spirit, brood upon this place, Lord God, and open our ears to hear what you're speaking. I, I pray that you would teach me and teach through me, Lord. Father, I pray that as a result of this word that nobody, in, including me, in this room, Lord God, will ever be the same. We, give, we do everything for your glory in your name. Jesus, amen. All right. Whenever we talk about Satan, the enemy, we tend to think about him doing absolutely everything he can to disrupt the kingdom of God. Any which way he can turn things, any which way he can disrupt or destroy things such that God's will does not happen on the earth, we think of him doing that. And one of the primary ways we think of Satan really trying to foil the plan of the kingdom of God is by lying. He, wants to, he lies and he wants us to believe lies. He wants us to believe lies about God, that God is not the good God that he is. Satan wants us to believe lies about ourselves, that we are not truly redeemed in Christ. He, he, he really pervades in lies, does a lot of things like that. Actually, in the scripture, Jesus says that when the enemy speaks a lie, he is actually speaking his native tongue. So we really try to watch out for all the ways that lies can permeate our lives and stuff like that, but 
very interesting enough, it's a very chilling discovery I made. When I look in my own life, and I look at the, my life in different ministries, and my life in the church, this church, my life in the church at large, I came to a staggering truth. When Satan really wants to destroy covenant community, when he truly wants to destroy, destroy redemptive community and what can happen in redemptive community, he uses the last thing that I would expect somebody of his caliber and his nature to do. He uses the truth. He uses true things about us, about you, and about me to attempt to destroy redemptive community and the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about how. Dr. M. Scott Peck, he's a psychiatrist, he wrote a book called A Different Drum, Community Making and Peace. Very good book. In this book, he lays out four essential stages or phases to community. Now, it's not linear. Sometimes you can go through these phases numbers of times, but every community, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, goes through this type of community-making thing. If you are one of our um, lead, um, small group leaders, you've probably heard this in basic training. The first um, phase is pseudo-community. This is a time where everybody's just meeting each other and everybody's new and everything just seems so perfect. And I mean, you just meet Sister, Sister Sue and Sister Sue, she doesn't meet a stranger and she just goes up and just gives you a holy hug and everything is great with her. And then you see Brother Sam and oh my God, he's just a prayer warrior. So you're in this place and you feel like you're in heaven. Everybody just clicks, everybody gets along. This is called the honeymoon stage. Everything is cool. Every, there's no conflict. There's no real problems. Everything is just wonderful. I mean, you, you just bless God for getting you into that community. So that's the pseudo-community stage. Then the next stage is often called the chaos stage. This is when things get real. This is when the makeup comes off. This is when we lower the Minnesota nights down just a little bit. When we take the shoes off and we have the funky feet, this is when <laughs> things start getting real. And you look at Sister Sue and you bless her and she likes talking to everybody, but you're starting to notice that she likes to talk about everybody as well. So she kind of gossips a lot and it's like, wow, I didn't see that before. And then you look at Brother Sam and he still likes to pray, but somehow he always seems to monopolize conversation monopolized prayer around his concerns and it's like wow and then when you first got into the group everybody loved the fact that you were so direct and everything but now they're calling you arrogant because you know you just can't seem to get a word in edgewise with you so at this point in time in the community things are coming out that have always been there but maybe because you were kind of had rose-colored glasses you didn't see them before it's when things begin getting real then you move to the emptiness stage, and the emptiness stage is when you just basically get together and say, okay, realizing all of the flaws we have, realizing all the failings we have, realizing all of the things that irk everybody, we are still committed to this. We're committed to being a community. We're going to work for this. We're going to do it. We're going to divest ourselves of our egos. We're going to divest ourselves of our own agendas and get together for the good of this community. And that's when they empty themselves out, which is why it's called emptiness. And then from there, then you move to true community. And that's when there's unity and diversity where everybody understands and knows and respects everybody's limitations and yet loves at, at the same time. Now, I believe Satan tries to work against the Christian community in all of these phases. But I feel like he really keys in on one particular phase, and that is that chaos stage where all the reality begins coming out. I believe that Satan likes to use those true things about us that we really don't like other people to know, and the same thing with other people. He uses those true things to tie us up against each other. 
to focus on what is wrong with us, what is lacking in us, what is not necessarily so holy about us. And that's where he likes to get us caught up in that wheel. And this happens in marriages. This happens in friendships. It happens in um, Christian covenant groups. This even happens in churches. Uh, tell me how many of y'all have experienced this. You were so excited to get involved with a ministry or a church, and you thought it was wonderful looking from the outside, and you knew it was going to be heaven on earth because there were so many Christians, and you get in there, and it's pure hell. Nobody is like you thought they were. When you start getting to know people, it's like, oh, so, oh my God, that's your attitude. And then you get in, you think, you find out the theology is not necessarily what you thought it was, and the perspective is not what you thought it was. And so you're in this situation, you see hypocrisy going on and all this kind of stuff, and you get to the point where you just say, you know what? You want to tell people, just get lost. Get away from me. No, better yet, I'll get away from you. We, we get to a point where we just say, you know, forget this relationship, forget this. I know we try to be a covenant people, but forget all of that. I have got to get away from here. I'm tired of being hurt. I'm tired of being misunderstood. I just, I just don't like this anymore because of what is actually there. So we end up in a place when we actually find out more about the people that we're with and actually more about ourselves than we really wanted to know. And then as a result of that, we want nothing more than to get away from that whole situation, to completely dissociate ourselves from the people with which we were trying to, com um, trying to form community. It's a natural function. But think about this. How in the world can we form the kingdom? How can the kingdom of God be built? How can we form redemptive community when this type of stuff happens? When we get into those situations where we just want to just nothing more than to break out. How do we stand against Satan when he tries to put those things in our way? I mean, it's good to know, hey, you know, the, the chaos stage is just a phase and you can go to the emptiness phase. But I, I, I know I ask myself, how do you move there? I mean, it's easier said than done. What do you need to do? God, what do you need to do? And I felt the Holy Spirit talking to me and saying, what's needed is a heart attitude. There is a certain heart attitude without which it will be impossible to move from the chaos, let's get real phase to the emptiness phase where everybody becomes more on one accord. And so God, I, I, read, I read scripture, and the principles of the right heart attitude for redemptive community came to me from a very unexpected place. And that is Paul's epistles to the Romans, chapters 9 through 11. Now to start off, just letting you know right now, this section of scripture that we're going to be working from is not solely about issues of Christian community. It's not necessarily just about formation of Christian community. Actually, this section is Paul really declaring the purposes of God towards Israel. He's writing to the church of Rome of all these Gentiles, and he knows that his people, the, the, the Jews, the Israelites, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, they are not receiving Jesus as the Messiah. And so people can look at this and be like, well, what's really going on here? What's really going on? And so he is declaring, hey, God is not through with his people. God is not through with Israel. So do not judge or mock because you have achieved by faith what they have not yet achieved. So that's mainly what's going on. However, in the way Paul addresses this, he gives us little tidbits and nuances and little glimpses of what a heart that is right for redemptive community looks like. And so that's what we are going to deal with today. The first thing, the first thing that a heart for redemptive community has to have is it has to be deeply identified with the people of the community. 
It has to be, it has to be deeply identified with the people within their community. If you go to Romans 9, verse 1. Romans 9, verse 1. This is Paul speaking. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I were myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them according to the flesh comes the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul in this one here, now understand he has gone to different synagogues. He has gone to places and have these people of his own kin throw him out, have people completely reject the message that he is sending that the Messiah has come in Jesus. And, and there, there's not too good a relationship right here. However, he identifies very deeply with his people historically. He says, hey, these, these are my brothers. These are my kinfolk. These are my cousins. These are my people. These are the people to whom God has given the law and who, to whom God has revealed the Messiah in the flesh. This, this, is, this is the history that we have. This is the common history that we share. And he not only looks historically to identify with his people, but he also looks to how God is working in his people. So in Romans 11:1, 1, after he's said a lot of stuff here, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he's, he's basically making himself an example. He says, you can't say that God is not working with Israel right now because I am an Israelite. I am living proof that God is still working among his people. So in his history and in also the future, Paul is identifying with his people. Even though it could be very understandable why he wouldn't want to have maybe anything to do with those people, given the fact of how he's been treated. Now, here's the thing. There's been so many times in our lives that people offend us, so they abuse us in our communities, if our, if, whether there's family or whatever, and we go into an instant, oftentimes, an instant us-them mode. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Somebody's hurting and somebody's being hurt. We want to dissociate even if it's family. I mean, you go to some family reunions, and it's like mama's mad at daddy, and, and people think that daddy's wrong, and some people think that mama's wrong, and so basically you might as well just draw a line right between the whole family reunion, and some people over here saying daddy's right, and some people over here saying mama's wrong, and instead of becoming a family reunion, focusing on the fact that they're common, they have a common ancestry, it's a family feud where these people are disagreeing with these people and they're so focused on the disagreement and where they don't agree that they can't focus on common things. They fo now, the, 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 realities, the reality might be there that excludes them, but they refuse to focus on commonalities, what they have in common and tr as far as trying to work things out. And Paul does this. Here's the thing. When you seek to identify with people, the people of your community, then you have much more resources, much more opportunity to have a deep empathy for what they're going through and to see things from their perspective, rather than objectifying them in an us-them manner. You have the ability to do that, and you don't fall into what I would like to call the this-ain't-my-problem syndrome. 
See, now there's a difference. There, there's, he, there's healthy boundaries, and I am all for healthy boundaries as far as knowing how far you're supposed to go and not how far to go and be prayerful on that. But I'm talking about a heart condition where because you have tension with a person in your community, whether that's family or covenant groups or whatever, you decide, well, since we have this tension, if something happens to you, that ain't my problem. Oh, you need to get a ride to the airport? Hey, that ain't my problem. You better call pastor. Oh, you need somebody to help you move? That's not my problem. You better go get mama and daddy. Oh, you need somebody to keep your lights on? That's not my problem. You better find anybody else but me. The that's not my problem syndrome. It's by objectifying and separating yourself from the people that you want to have as community that you're able to do that. But to the extent that you identify with them, you're not as able to separate yourself in such a callous manner. And it's also by that identification that you can actually move to the second aspect of what makes a right heart a right heart for redemptive community. And that is you have to have immense loving concern for the people of your community. You have to have immense loving concern for the people of your community. Again, going by Romans 9. I'm going to skip down a little bit. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. Now that's a deep statement, but it's even deeper when you think about who is saying this. The man who is writing this is, is saying, the man who is writing this is a man that has seen the light of Jesus Christ to the point that he was knocked off his animal on the road to Damascus. This is a man that basically said, you know what? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the man that basically said, you know what? I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I knew all this stuff and I counted all as dumb for that I might know Christ. This is a man that has been beaten, been tore up, and he basically says, you know what? I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is a man that has truly made Jesus Christ the actual center of his existence, the center of his life, and the center of his ministry. And so this is the man that says, I wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ. Now, I'm asking you, how many of any of us, if people were ticking us off that much, people were assailing us that much, that we would say, I want to be cut off from the very source of life that makes me me? I'm sitting there, now, now you, I'm, I'm just looking at myself. Wish myself cut off from Christ? You catch me on a wrong day, I wouldn't wish myself cut off from my cable TV. <laughs> Period. Keep messing with me, you know? And that's in my fallenness. I, got, I love my travel channel. But... Uh, <laughs> But there's just some major self-sacrificial stuff going on here. And he doesn't make any bones about it. He just lays his heart on the line and just says it. In Romans 10:1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire, the thing that I really want and pray to God for, is that my people may be saved. In the midst of everything that's going on with him, his singular d desire is to see the best interest of these people, his people, being met in Jesus Christ. Now, when we look in our relationships with our family and friends and our covenant groups or whatever, we have to ask ourselves, do we have the same heart? Are we so concerned about Sister Sue that even though she's still gossiping and somewhat talking about you, that you actually still care about what's going on in her life? Or Brother Sam, even though he's still monopolizing prayer time and thinking everything's about him, that you really consider him and love him to see maybe what's going on beyond that? I remember in my old Baptist church, they used to say that God was so good, he would see beyond your faults and see your needs. Is that the kind of Christ-like love that we have in our communities, that we are willing to see beyond the faults of the people of our community, even our own faults, and see their needs? 
Let's twist this around another way. Paul is so, I mean, he's so wonderful here. He basically says, you know, he, he, everything to him is Christ. But you can see a level of pain in what he's writing here. He's really hurting because his people, in their ignorance, are not necessarily acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. And what he says in a sense is this, as long as somebody in my, in my community, some of my brethren are not whole, I am not whole. As long as somebody in my community is not free, I am not free. And I wonder today, in our, in our spheres of influence, do we think that way? If somebody in my covenant group is struggling just to make ends meet, I am not, I am not happy, I am not whole until that person is made more happy and whole. This church, if we know of people that are, that are emotionally battered or bruised, are we truly just enjoying ourselves in the presence of God and not in some way hurting for those people in our body? Do we truly say in our minds, until you are free, until you are delivered, until you have the peace of God, I cannot fully have that and have that holy discontent. Unless a person has an immense level of love for God, they cannot do that. And the reason why this is so important is because I think somebody said a long time ago, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, that you have for one another. This is how they know, this is how they'll know, not by your preaching, not by all the Bibles you carry. This is how they'll know, is that you love one another. Do we love one another enough to look beyond what we don't like and say, hey, I still see your needs. I still see God loves you, and I, give, I ascribe worth to you on that basis. Are we willing to do that? That's the second thing. Third thing, very, very important, a, a, a heart that is right for redemptive community believes in God's calling and activity among his people. The right heart believes in God's calling and activity among his people. Romans 11. It's near the end of that section. Romans 11, verse 25. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon a part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved as it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. So, now, so they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. So he's writing to these Gentiles. He's saying, hey, look, don't get it twisted. I realize that you see Israel is, is, is just not listening to my message. I realize that you're saying all this stuff, but understand that God has called these people to a certain purpose. God has called this people from the descendants of Abraham for the salvation of the entire world to come through them. They are the tree in which you are engrafted. So you cannot sit here and say that God is not working. I already gave you proof that I am an Israelite myself. 
So God's calling is without repentance, and we know that God is still working in their midst. In the midst of everything that Paul has experienced at the hands of some of his fellow Jews, he sees with eyes of faith. He sees the people that are going—he sees in his mental image of of the people of Israel coming to understand Jesus as Messiah. He he lives in the life of faith with the eyes of faith looking at his community, even though he sees face-to-face evidence, prima facie evidence, that they're not ever going to receive things. The question to us, when we look in our communities and our families, do we have those kinds of eyes of faith? Do we believe that in the church that we're in, in the Christian communities that we're in, that God has put a calling on the people's lives that are there and that God is actually active in their lives and we are supposed to look for that activity and we're supposed to honor that calling? Do we believe that? Or, or do we live in the skepticism that our world so honestly just places us in? Now, let me tell you something. I understand our world is so messed up. I mean, it is so easy to be a pessimist. I understand some people probably struggle with pessimism. I struggle with pessimism. You know, if you ask me, it's a trite question, but if you ask me that question some days, well, Dwayne is the glass half full or half empty. I'm like, man, it's half empty, it's dirty, and it's cracked at the bottom. It's messed up, dog. I just whole thing is just messed up, you know. But even though I might have that natural tendency towards pessimism, does that relieve me of the responsibility to look at my brothers and sisters and really believe in my heart of heart that God is working in their life? Does that relieve me of the responsibility to look with the eyes of faith in the church in general? And when I see things I don't necessarily like and they don't necessarily go with my view, for me to say, I don't know it, I can't see it, but I know that God is working there. I know that God has put a calling on these people's life and that God is working there. Do we have those eyes of faith? I remember watching this, this TV special, and it was dealing with this ice, these ice sculptors. And you know how these ice sculptors, they have these people have a big, big block of ice, and they just get a chainsaw or something, and get chisels, and then it's like a rainbow or some just dove or something. It's like, how in the world do they do that, you know? I'll, I'll, that stuff just trips me out. So anyway, they go to this one guy, and it's like, you know, well, man, how do you do that? And I thought his answer was very profound. I think he got it from somewhere else, I'm I'm being told. But this is what he said. He said, it's almost like I have x-ray vision. I I see almost through the block, and I see an image or something in the block. I see a figure in the block. And so when I see that image, and this is what he said, it really got me, it pulls on me to draw it out. I see that image, I see that thing in there, and it pulls on me to draw it out. So I'm just basically, instead of just sculpting something, I'm really just bringing out what was already there. Do we have that heart when we look at each other? Do we see an image? Do we see a God-entranced figure of what you could be when we look at each other? See, what the devil wants us to focus on, this is how he uses the truth. The devil wants us to focus on what is and not what necessarily can be. He wants us to focus on all the things that are wrong, all the things that cannot be fixed, the so-called, all these different things like that. And he basically wants to say, well, you know that scripture about he is able to do exceedingly above everything you could ask and think? Forget that. Um, God, without, with God, all things are possible. No, forget that. Just look at what the situation is, and it will never be beyond that. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to rob us of the idea of looking at the potential that we have in ourselves. Think about what would have happened 
if Mary would have just looked at her situation, I think Greg preached about this a couple of weeks ago, if Mary had just looked at her situation and said, hey, I'm this pre-teenage girl in this podunk town, do you really expect me to do anything good or have any kind of baby that is going to make any kind of difference? No way. But she had enough faith to basically say, hey, be it to, be it to me as you say. That's living with the eyes of faith. In order for us to truly have redemptive community, we have to so live with those eyes of faith that I'm willing to say, you know, Sister Sue, I see that you're talking about me, and I know that you're not stopping, but I'm looking, and I see through all that mess, and I see a prayer warrior that can pray down angels from here to Timbuktu. And, 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 and Brother Sam, I know that you're still monopolizing all of the prayer time, but for some reason, I just see, this, I, I see this, 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 this person in you that can bring the word to hundreds of people. I don't know why I see that, but I do, it's because that person has eyes of faith that are willing to see beyond what is real for that moment in time. Those are the eyes that we need to have if we're going to be what God has called us to be. So these are three things that the, that the heart that is right for redemptive community needs. We need a heart that deeply identifies with the people of his community, empathy-wise. We need people that are willing to have unimaginable, unfathomable, crazy love for the people of the community. And then we need people that have eyes of faith that believe in God's calling and activity among the people in which they're placed. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but you look at those things and it's like, boy, you're crazy. <laughs> do you actually expect me, do you actually expect us to do all that? This is 20, 21st century America, man. No, beyond that, like Dwayne, you don't see, Dwayne, you don't know how many churches I've come through and how many churches have hurt me. You don't know how many, how many times I've been betrayed by so-called Christian communities. You don't know all of those things. What you're asking me to do, I cannot do it in any form or fashion. Well, here's the thing, and I got to say that. No, you can't do it. I can't do it. There is absolutely no way that anybody in this room can do it. The only person that can do it and do it through us is God, the Spirit of God. We cannot do anything, anything, unless we are linked to the vine of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's a passive thing. I'm not saying anything like we don't do anything like spiritual disciplines to make that happen. And I'm not saying that there, are, there might be some things that we need healing from in order to do this. What I am saying is I think we've gotten it in our minds that we are the ones that build the church and we forgot that God is the person who builds the church. Jesus is the person who set up the church, and he is the person that builds his church. He builds it through people that are yielded to his spirit, that are humble, that are honest with themselves, and say, I can't do it. God, it has to be you to do this. See, I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul talks about this stuff in Romans 9, 11, after he deals with Romans 8, after he talks about how the spirit of God actually conquers the spirit, actually conquers the law of sin and death. He knows, I believe he knows that there's a prerequisite there. You can't do it by yourself. You can't have those eyes of faith without understanding the power and presence of God in your own life. The power that we need, the power that we need is the power to take Satan's power over truth away. And the power that Satan has over truth is judgment and condemnation. He will point you to those things, and those things might be very, very real, very, very authentic. But he wants to point them things to you and say, hey, judge that, condemn that, even in yourself. Judge that, condemn that, and you'll never be more than that. 
And what God wants to give us is eyes of faith that say, no, devil, you a liar. The fact of the matter is, even though this is true, God can bring me beyond that. God can bring this, people, this person beyond that. God can bring our community beyond that. We have to believe in that power. Um, there's a scripture that comes to my mind whenever I think about this, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let me tell you something. In this world, there's probably a number of reasons why we have a stony heart, probably a number of legitimate reasons. We've been hurt. We try to make ourselves vulnerable and people just used us, all these different things. But let me tell you something. The spirit of God can defossilize that heart. It might not be instant. It may take a long time, but the Spirit of God can provide the healing in your life such that you can provide healing and a healing community to other people. If we allow God and we say, God, I have a lot of asphalt around here, my broken heart, I have a lot of gravel and a lot of, um, a lot of marble, I need your Spirit to take those pieces out and give me a heart of flesh. Give me a heart that Jesus had when he hung up on that cross for me. We need you to do that. The Spirit of God does that. Now, let me give a possible example of what this might look like, because I, I like to do this. Just imagine you have a Christian community. It could be a covenant group. It could be just a Christian group. And at first you get together, and you know that honeymoon stage, it goes, everybody's loving each other. Oh, my God, this is so wonderful. I've never been in such an open environment, and we're praying, and we're loving, and we're doing worship songs in the group at the home. It's just it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Sisters over here just praying. Everybody's laughing and talking. We're bringing over fig newtons, and things are just wonderful. It couldn't be better. You know, you're just like, oh, God, thank you for bringing me to this community. And so you're there. And over a couple of months, you know, you, 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 you go beyond the pleasantries and you actually start talking about some issues. You know, it's like one person says, yeah, well, I'm having some real problems with the, the neighbor next door. And this one other person is like, well, I'm having some problems with my boss at work. And you're like, oh, gosh, this is great. You know, we're going a little bit deeper. And you get a new guy in there. His name is Kyle. And after a couple of months, Kyle is opening up. He, he's feeling all this openness going on. You're able to talk about work. You're able to talk about home. And so he starts saying, well, yeah, I have some issues to. And so things are progressing month by month. And then all of a sudden, you get, you get, he gets to a point where he's like, oh my gosh, spirit's on me. I really want to just say something. And so you're in the group. You're like, well, what is it, Kyle? And then he's like, you know, well, I just, I've been struggling with pornography. And, 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 and everybody in the group is kind of excited because it's like, you know, we like being edgy. You know, we like to be like, you know, we're not like those religious people. We can, we can take the truth. So, he's, so he says this stuff about pornography. And you're like, oh my God, we're going to be breaking yokes and doing wonderful things. He says, yes. He's like, sometimes I just struggle so hard with it. You know, Sometimes I even watch kitty porn. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I've watched, you know, pictures of 10-year-old little girls and I get aroused. And then you kind of sit back and you think about the fact that you have a 10-year-old niece. Or you sit back and think about the fact that that brother over there has a 10-year-old daughter. And so things kind of go on, and, and you know, you, you're not really saying anything. Nobody really says anything about it. They just kind of pray about it. But as you go home and as you think about it, I mean, you think about how you feel about child molesters and, and child abusers and how you feel about sla sex slavery in foreign countries, and it just makes you angry. And, and you think about how revolting it is, and, and you think about how you think about that every time you see Kyle. And even though you don't say anything and nobody in the group says anything, there's just this funky dynamic that happens, and nobody really talks about it, but 
but there's this wall that comes up and, and, and he can feel the distance and you can feel the distance and everybody else in the group can feel the distance. And nobody really decides to talk about that issue. They'll go deep on everything else. And then all of a sudden it almost wants to break because you discover yourself saying, I don't want to be a part of this community anymore. Somebody has to go. It either has to be me or Kyle. And you almost want to go up to Kyle saying, Kyle, it's not you, it's me. I just have to be away from the situation. I can't necessarily deal with that. Um, I just got to leave you alone, and I got to leave this, this, this community alone. Now, that can happen. And don't get, don't, get, don't get mistaken about this. It does happen in covenant groups. It does happen in churches. It happens. When people get real and they start letting out stuff that they've never told anybody else, and maybe there's that difficulty in dealing with it for one reason or another. And that's one way to go, and maybe they break up and all that stuff like that. But there's another way. What if I, as a person, I go to my prayer closet, and we as a group, we go to our individual prayer closet, and we say, God, we know that you're doing something right here, but we're just telling you right now we can't do it. I cannot do it. I have too many issues with this. I can't, I, I, every time I see this, I get sickened. There's nothing I can do about it. I have been, I have these stones in my heart and I need for you, however you do it, I need for you to get these stones out of my heart, Lord. And everybody does that. And everybody looks in their own life and, and they see different things and they say, you know what? We are just gonna come together and we're gonna, we're gonna seek God's face and see what God does with this. And as they all seek God's face, something very interesting happens. It's kind of weird at first because everybody says, okay, well, we're gonna commit to this thing. We're gonna keep coming. But after a while, people start identifying with Kyle and they didn't think it was ever gonna happen. But after a while, you know, you realize it's like, you know, hey, I've got this gambling issue and I almost lost the house and I almost lost my marriage over it and I never said it in this group. And then this other brother says, you know, hey, well, I just had to say this. I have a real not tolerance for white people. Sometimes I look at them and I just hate them. I don't want to be around them. And then this other person's over here saying, you know, well, why are y'all talking about that? I beat my wife. She never mentions it, but it happens. And, 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 and after a while, you start saying, you know, all these sins, there's none one greater than the other. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags before the, the face of God. And so you feel that way and you identify with each other's sin. And so then you call out to God together, oh my God, God, we, we are not worthy of your grace. We are not worthy of your majesty. And then something else weird happens. You get into this place where you move past empathy and you actually love one another. For some reason, you, you couldn't do it before, but you can actually put your arm around Kyle and while he's bawling his eyes out over his sin, you can say, hey, God is with you, brother, because God is with me. And you can ball on Kyle's shoulder and there's this love that just permeates everything about that group. It's so weird that sometimes you just want to just, just, just take a picture because it's so not what you're used to. And you're in that mode of love. And then over time, and this might take months, it might take years, you get together and you're like, hey, Kyle, do you need to go to the refuge? We'll support you in that. We'll help you with that. And we'll do all the stuff that we can to feed into you. And then one day, one day, it's really, really weird. You're sitting in the group and all of a sudden you see it and somebody else sees it. You see this spark. You see the spark in Kyle that was never there before. And what you see is you see the potential for Kyle to speak to hundreds and hundreds of people about the issues of pedophilia and about the issues of pornography. He doesn't even see it, but you see it. With the eyes of faith, you see right now that he's falling. You see right now that he's kind of timid because he doesn't have self-respect, um, but you decide to pour in 
into him as a group. You decide to love him. You decide to give him faith. You decide to be real with him. Hey, I got to be real with you. I might not be bringing my daughter around you, but I believe in you. I, I care for you. And you deal with these issues in a very real way, in a very loving context. And all of a sudden, it's really weird. He begins to see it. He begins to see it, and he begins to read the word of God and begin to precede God and say, God, is this really what you want from me? And then it might be a month, it might be a year, but then you actually as a group are sitting in the front row as Kyle is speaking to hundreds and hundreds of people about how God has delivered him from his pornography. I submit to you, my brothers and sisters, I submit to you, that is the kingdom. That is redemptive community. I shudder to think about how many dreams, how many seeds that God is planting people we have killed because we have not shown love, because we have not looked with the eyes of faith. How many people have been broken in the Christian community because we could not empathize? I shudder to think about it. But that is the kingdom. That's redemptive community. And Kyle might never have realized his dream without that community willing to, step with, within, willing to deal with it, willing to work with it, willing to get on their faces before God and say, God, I need you. I want to put this thing back up on the screen here. Um, the thing that God spoke to our church. I know of your passion in worship. Hey, worship is wonderful. It's great to worship God and be in the presence of God. I know of your passion in worship. Great. Fervor and proclamation, hearing the word, seeing the word preached, oh, that is wonderful. But you are too much of an event. It is not enough to have good worship, and it is not enough just to hear preaching going on. It has to be a community. In our families, in our covenant groups, in this church, we have to be a community. God has called us to be a spiritually empowered community. Let all who have an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying. I believe God wants this place to be such a community of love that newspapers have to come in here because of who's coming. I believe that God wants this place to be so just, just a source of healing that they will not believe who gets emotionally, physically, or psychologically healed just by being in the presence of other believers. I believe that. I believe this is what God is calling to, but I also believe that that statement you just saw up there, it's a declaration of dependence. It's not a declaration of independence, a declaration of dependence, because we know that we cannot do it on our own. We have to individually say, God, we cannot do this. This, this vision is too lofty for us. You've given it to us, and we know you want us to do it, but we cannot do it without you. We need your spirit take out the stones in our hearts. You know where we've been hurt, God. You know how we've been abused, God. You know our, our, our issues, God. Please work in our hearts to take out those stones so that we can be a part of redemptive community. I believe that God wants us to think about where we are, our spheres of influence, our families, whatever communities we're in, and really evaluate our interactions. Are we seeking that heart of redemptive community? How far are we from that? And not to condemn us, but just to say, I need you to understand where I want you as a people to go and that you cannot do it yourself. You have to do it through me. I believe that God has so many things for people out there and people in here, but unless we get this right heart for a redemptive community, it won't happen. And Satan will have triumphed over us by just letting us see the truth. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this word.
I thank you so much for the opportunity to speak your word to your people. I pray right now that even as we leave, that you would give us opportunities to live this out, to test our hearts, to test our minds, Lord God, to move us beyond where we are, Lord. Father, I pray that, you know, however long it takes that your spirit works with us, Lord, whether it's individually or whether it's through professional help or whether it's through things like the refuge, Lord God, whatever we need to do to, to be that wounded healer that you've called us to be, Lord God, let us do that. Because we want to see your redemptive community come into place. We want to see nothing more than you glorified. But we can't do it alone. We need you. And we just thank you so much for this word. Father, we pray, we thank you that we are not the same as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.